six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station. Hi, my name is Rochelle, and I'm the producer of A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Today, in honor of Juneteenth, we're presenting a special broadcast. First, we're airing an episode of the Counter Stories podcast out of Minnesota. Rose McGee, the founder and president of Sweet Potato Comfort Pie and author of Kumbaya, the Juneteenth Story, joins the host to dig deeper into the history of the Emancipation Proclamation and the recent resurgence of interest in the importance of June 19th. Then we'll play a clip from when former WORT Assistant News Director Jonah Chester took to the streets last year to hear what Juneteenth means to people in Madison. In the final segment, we'll rebroadcast Jan Miyasaki's 8 o'clock buzz interview with historian Gerald Horn from 2019 about celebrating the 4th of July and his book, White Supremacy Confronted. Happy Juneteenth and enjoy the show. This is Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Reverend Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church and senior partner at Dendros Group. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I state are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. And I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. So it is June. And oftentimes when June comes around, folks start to think towards summer. They start to think towards all of these different things. But there's also Juneteenth. And we have a very special guest with us today who's going to join with us, who wrote this beautiful play. And she's going to talk more about that forward. But we also have with us one of my mentors, one of my first teachers of storytelling and so much more, uh, Miss Rose McGee. Welcome, Rose. Well, thank you. Now you're making me sound really, really, really whatever it is. I won't say, oh, but, you know, quite seasoned. Yes. <laughs> and you know what? I'm embracing that. I'm embracing that. That's yes. what's up. Reverend. <laughs> well, I'm so glad to have you here, and and we're going to get to talking about about the play, about the history of Juneteenth, the history of Juneteenth in Minnesota in particular, um, and then and then just generally as we come into this season, uh, it's so important, especially now. And you were on KMOJ at the day of this recording earlier, talking a little bit about um, you know the where we've come as a nation around the Juneteenth holiday. But I, I want to start us off by reading the official order from General Gordon Granger. Juneteenth, June 19th, is designated um, as, as, uh, uh, as kind of a freedom or independence day for African-Americans with the history through slavery in the United States, um, in large part because on June 19th, 1865, General Gordon Granger, this is a little excerpt from the play, gallantly rides into Texas, right, is forced to abandon his current mission and go to Texas to give an order um, because people were moving from other states that were in rebellion against uh, the Emancipation Proclamation and the order to remove their slaves in 1865 on June 19th had to read this proclamation that basically told folks in Texas that you had to emancipate your slaves under penalty of death. 
Now, it's widely known for anybody who's actually read the history that General Gordon Granger did not want to go to Texas, did not want to give this order. But I want to give this full order because oftentimes folks will just read the first part and not go into the rest of it, which is apropos to some of our conversation today. But it's General Order Number 3, and in Galveston, Texas, on, 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 on um, June 19th, 1865, he says, The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with the proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves, and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired labor. The freedmen, and this is where he turns to talking to the black folks, the freedmen are advised to remain quietly at their present homes and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and that they will not be supported in idleness either there or elsewhere. That is the order that is the founding, uh, that is the impetus for what would become the June holiday in the country um, that folks are just now beginning to awaken to outside of black communities. So I, I saw your face, Ms. McGee, as I was reading the, the other part of that order. So what's coming up for you as we start talking about and embark on Juneteenth? Well, you know, it goes back to even uh, those words that um, Lincoln had in the Emancipation Proclamation. There's this thing that people feel that they must control every aspect of how black people participate and function in this society. Uh, and Lincoln's verbiage was they will be given gradual, gradual emancipation, which meant, no, they're not, we're not going to free them right away. We're going to take our time about it because, you know, behind the scenes was we just want everybody to, to make sure that they have time to do what they need to do. Not so much the black folks, but let's make sure that um, all the slave owners have time to get it together so that, you know, when this uh, transformation, this transition takes place, that um, you'll be in, you'll be, you'll be in better shape. So, you know, out of that grew that verbiage that we just heard from Gordon Granger, which is basically saying, okay, don't y'all be going nowhere anytime <laughs> soon. Um, and that's really what it's about. So when we look at the, oh, uh, just no value that's placed on us as human beings in terms of being ourselves, value is placed on human beings as being the property of others. You know, what's coming up for me, in addition to what Rose just said, is just setting people up for failure. You know, when you talk about no idleness, idleness, what does that mean? There's That is such a subjective term. And it clearly conveys that we're going to control you, right? Mm -hmm. And we define what idleness means. And in my mind, you know, the mindset I can imagine that that went into this, and I'm speculating because I wasn't there 100 plus years ago, but it's we dictate how much you're going to work when you stop working and when you're going to be eligible for going to sleep, basically, right? Or going to eat because idleness then otherwise would not make sense in this, right? It, the expectation is to drive someone to work to exhaustion uh, the way it had been when um, owners enslaved people, our black 
brothers and sisters and put them in this position. And, and so that to me is something that's it's really coming up and bothering me, but not surprising because that is the spirit of what the mindset was to have control of or over black bodies. Mm-hmm. And I want to, I appreciate you saying that because these are the kinds of things that made black people feel ultimately of, of needing to assimilate. Mm. because so many things they didn't have access to doing. You couldn't just sit on the porch and have a tall glass of lemonade. That's idleness, right? Mm. So uh, the idea of you doing something like that and taking the time to have a birthday party and to celebrate something, that's idleness, right? So when Black people began to do these things, they wanted to do them the way that they'd learned it from old Masa and Mrs. Uh, in the house, right? Uh, this is what we used to do. We used to make these big cakes and everybody would party. And so that's what that's what we've imitated. And it, even on down to education, right? We wanted to learn the way they learn and do and things and dress the way they dress and all of that. So that was okay for them because that made you more like you were civilized. It's like, you know, the whole thing with, with uh, going to Africa and trying to train the people in Africa and, and, and civilize the folks on, on the continent of Africa because, after all, they were savages. So now here we've caught these savages, we've brought them here, we've had them enslaved, and now we're about to let them go? Oh, no. So there was fear there, too. So some of that control had to do with fear and not wanting to uh, release this out there without people fully understanding um, what they could and couldn't do. And to your point, too, on the issue of fear, this is also the idleness part of it and the subjectivity of it means that law enforcement and employers slash former slave owners can now have you arrested because you are, quote unquote, idle. Right. So let's be clear that their vigilance and wanting to restrict a black person's mobility and functioning is still there, even though this has been shared as, okay, you folks are now free from enslavement. But are you really when you're still subjected to this? And of course, this opens the door to all the black codes that we're familiar with, vagrancy, all that stuff that historically we're aware of. This, to me, is part of all of that mindset and that thinking that you by no means will be free-free, even though the word is there in the Emancipation Proclamation, even though we're saying it, it, we don't really mean it because we're instituting all of these systemic barriers that will ensure that we will continue to have you under our thumb with regard to slave, uh, former slave owners, but also law enforcement. Absolutely. I mean, those sorts of things still exist today, right? The idleness, the the whole concept of um, black guys hanging out, the cops are going to be called right away, right? They're loitering or they're being lazy because why aren't they doing this? Why aren't they doing that? Why aren't they working? That kind of stuff. It still exists today. It continues to exist and it, it starts from that, right? You're listening to Counter Stories. I'm Anthony Galloway with co-hosts Don Eubanks, Luz Maria Frias, and Hlee Lee, with special guest Rose McGee. This show is supported by Ampers and the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com. You know, uh, one of the things that I think is 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 
is is interesting to me, one, that idleness piece, right? Because none of this is unconnected. So we know that, as you talked about um, uh, earlier today um, in, in, a, in a radio show that I was, I was, I was list, as I was listening, the complications around Abraham Lincoln. And Don, this is going to go right up your alley, uh, Professor Eubanks, because um, many folks will have been taught growing up about Abraham Lincoln as this great emancipator. And I even had to, to stand up and play Abraham Lincoln in church plays and school plays and things growing up. And then I get a fuller story. I get a fuller story about Abraham Lincoln trying to bring black clergy together to re-emancipate black folks to Africa to avoid conflicts in the war. Um, you know, you, you can read more about that in that book, Team of Rivals, that talks a little bit about that. But we also have to contend with the fact that Abraham Lincoln, as Don has pointed out to us many a times over, is the largest Indian killer of all of our presidents. And so the great emancipator has a whole lot of blood on his hands at the same time. In fact, you had an interesting uh, point of reference to even Minnesota in Mankato as you were talking about uh, Abraham Lincoln recently in one of the play rehearsals. Yeah, we did. And I'm sure Don can talk about it more, um, you know, uh, clearer with greater clarity than I can. But certainly the same um, night or whatever time frame that he was signing and pinning things um, getting ready for that Emancipation Proclamation thing to sign that. He was also signing off for the 38 to be killed in Mankato. So, and, and the thing about Lincoln, like most presidents, he's operating from what he's being told to do. He's operating from his constituents who he's got to keep satisfied. And if people haven't tracked that over time in what presidents tend to do when they're in office is because of who they're to, you know, give their, uh, <laughs> who they're to pay back, right? So that's that's it, a lot of it. And um, we're seeing that played out now a lot too, particularly um, in the last administration where we are still seeing it. Everybody has their own, own um, platform, if you will. And that's why they support someone, because they want to make sure that their platform is brought to the forefront. That's how politics go. And so now that you're in office, I want to get my thing in, and you're going to have to let me get my thing in. So this had been a thing that um, somebody obviously wanted to get in, and I'll turn that over to Don to talk about. But yeah, those two things were signed right around the same time. Well, I mean, Rose, you covered it. You know, both you and Anthony have covered that very well. It, it's, I, I think the only thing that I would add to that is, is that when I, re, when I think about coming up through school, through elementary school, junior high school, and high school, that the way Lincoln was portrayed and the way he was taught um, gave me, you know, left the impression with me that you know, we're taught that Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. Now, they don't go in depth behind that. So later, when we do additional reading and we dig into that a little bit deeper, and keep in mind that while we're in school, they never mention um, the hanging of 38 Sioux as a result of them standing up and fighting for their homeland and their rights because they're being starved to death by the settlers who, who relocated here which later would become Minnesota. So for standing up and fighting for their rights, 
They were forcibly removed from Minnesota. They originally were going to hang 300, over 300. And mm. uh, Lincoln's lawyers actually whittled that down because so many of those cases, I mean, they supposedly held these these court hearings, right? <laughs> where mm-hmm. where they, air quotes. Air quotes, right? So, you know, when he signed that, they hung 38 Sioux in, in Mankato and then removed the rest of Dakota from from Minnesota. And the other thing behind that is while they were doing that, they also took the opportunity to remote, uh, remove the Ho-Chunk. The Ho-Chunk had, mm. were located mm. outside of Mankato. And, and so while we know they removed the Dakota, we don't hear that they took that same opportunity to remove the Ho-Chunk from the state of Minnesota at the same time. But I say all that because we, I was left with the impression that George Washington is the father of this country. He was the first president. But what didn't hold true for me was that he held slaves. But Lincoln freed the slaves. So it would give me a child of, you know, black indigenous background, the impression that, oh, my God, Lincoln is this great guy. Well, when you really look into it, you find that, you know, <laughs> he he didn't do this out of a moral obligation against slavery. He did it for economic for economic reasons. And it wasn't it wasn't because he had this moral aptitude or he had this, you know, all of a sudden, the, you know, God's hand touched his head and he came to a census that had nothing to do with it. Yeah, if if it was up to him, you know, he wouldn't have freed us, but it was an economic thing. That's why he was also working so hard on sending us back to Africa because he didn't know what to do with us after he freed us. So for <laughs> mm-hmm. the so mm-hmm. for the general to make that statement in Texas makes sense. I mean, it, it's no different because now that you freed these our ancestors, what are you going to do with them, right? Mm-hmm. And so. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so he, you know, and, and so most people in Minnesota weren't aware of that fact, that at the same time he's emancipating one part of my ancestry, he's killing the other. So, and that was still happening. Most people still don't know that he did that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So we're freeing, mm-hmm. we're freeing one half of, you know, my dad's side while we're still killing my mother's and, and, and my mother's side. And so these two things are, to me, incongruent, right? Mm-hmm. How, 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 how can this country incongruently do these things simultaneously and the and unfortunately, history shows us that this country is very good at doing those type of things consistently mm-hmm. to communities of color. You're listening to Counter Stories. I'm Anthony Galloway with co-host Don Eubanks, Luz Maria Frias, and Hlee Lee with special guest Rose McGee. This show is supported by Ampers and the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit Counter Stories. From the formation of our country, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Where we the people, right? Who are we the Mm -hmm. people? Well, when you read the the fine print, it's white male landowners, right? It's not 
women. It's I like not how you put that, people Louis. of color. It's Read sure the fine hell. print. <laughs> <laughs> it's sure as heck not indigenous folks, you know, who are being killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, we discovered America. No, you did not discover America. Mm-hmm. The land is indigenous. It existed before you came in and began to destroy it and usurp it of its minerals and all the riches and the people, right? I mean, this this may seem a, a, a bit uh, too much for some of our listeners, but I mean, it's been said many times over, but with people other than myself is, we we started the this country, if you will, based on a series of lies and misrepresentations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it is really necessary for us to look ourselves in the mirror and be honest with ourselves. That's part of truth and reconciliation for us to begin to heal as a nation. But that's way too much for some folks, you know, and there's a lot of fragility involved with some folks who just can't wrap their minds around it. But facts are facts. You know, the saying is you can have your own version of the Mm -hmm. story, but you can't have your own version of the facts. And that's very true. The, The play, for example, um, has two scenes and they can be used interchangeably um, or if someone has time to do them both, they can. But one of those scenes is Lincoln in his study really wrestling with himself about signing this thing and, and also just putting the verbiage together. And and so that's when we bring out some of the things that... Um, uh, we heard Don allude to around economics and saving the union and making sure because other countries were, you know, wanting to part ways with this country because of some aspect of slavery, even though, you know, some of them had it too, but not to the extent that was being done here as it was. And then you got to remember the jealousy and the envy that some were having, uh, this whole North and South thing. You've got this free labor going on down here. You've got this cotton that's happening down there and tobacco and that stuff. And look how wealthy that part of the country is getting. And we're not having that so so, so much up here. So there was all of this this, this tugging, you know, of, of war that goes back and forth with people when when they are envious of stuff. Uh, that somebody else has that they don't have. So we really, uh, the only thing I can say at this point for us is to make sure that we are sensitive to what it is that we embrace and celebrate. Because most likely anything that you're celebrating in this country has to do with the sacrifice of something and somebody that um, is not benefiting too much from it <laughs> anymore. So that's that's the thing, and, and probably this world as well. But I just know how how hard it is um, uh, to talk about Lincoln in 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 in, a, in this grandiose way. When I mean, and and we're thankful that he's you know delivered us from slavery, so to speak, in the sense that we know it by law, which is why law is so important. It is so important to make sure that legal things are done right, Lose, make sure that, um, you know, somebody's got to do it because if these laws are not, um, you know, reconstructed and if they're not fixed in a way that is, in fact, going to be something beneficial to everyone, then it's just a bunch of stuff that stays in place for we the people. 
you know, we're, we're part of the reason of having you talk about this is because there's a play that's happening on June 17th um, at Breck. So as we wrap up here, because I know that Anthony and Rose have to go rehearse for said play that we've been talking about right after this. What are your suggestions to our listeners who might not be people of color on how they should celebrate Juneteenth? Well, first of all, they should come to the play on the 17th of June, either 10 a.m. or 7 p.m. And again, both performances are free. Breck School in Golden Valley is where they will be. We suggest that you register so we can get, you know, have an idea of the count. And you can go, do that by going to the Sweet Potato Comfort Pie um, website under the events page. And I think I should take this opportunity. There is a small group in Roseville, where I live, where that kind of started um, after um, after efforts here um, surrounding Philandro Castile's death. And this group has has put on some Juneteenth celebrations in Central Park in Roseville. And this year, um, they're putting on, I think, their third or fourth annual Juneteenth celebration. And not, and this time they have they actually have some black artists that will be coming in and performing. And they have some black entrepreneurs and other black businesses that will be there and black vendors that will be there. I am glad that people are seeing and starting to recognize. Um, one of the gentlemen who is also very involved with um, Juneteenth nationally is Mr. Lee Henry Jordan. And he was telling me that he was up in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, speaking about Juneteenth. They wanted to bring it to the forefront there in their community. So it's happening all over. And I just want to squeeze this in real quick because um, Ms. Jackson mentioned it today. Sometimes we forget about who who the pioneers were. Mm -hmm. And she referenced um, Michael Cheney as being a person who had gone someplace and they were celebrating Juneteenth, and he brought it back and said, we've got to do this right here in Minnesota, of all places, Minnesota. We weren't even doing it in Tennessee, but he's one of those early early pioneers as well. I want to add that certainly there are celebrations to be had in community, and for folks who are unable to attend those, uh, you're not off the hook. <laughs> there are other ways for you to celebrate. Uh, first and foremost would be to celebrate by supporting financially Black-owned businesses where you live, whether it's in the Twin Cities or Minnesota or our listeners across the country. Uh, all you have to do is support, uh, Google uh, supporting Black businesses, uh, in Minnesota in particular, mnblackbusiness.com. It has a Minnesota Black-owned business directory on their website. Uh, mspmag.com also has had um, some listings. The point being is that put your money where your mouth is and support some black businesses. Uh, we know that in particular, smaller businesses um, owned in community support uh, two thirds of the job growth. So it, it economically has um, a longer tail to this in terms of impact. Uh, and then I would say, start reading some black authors that you've not read before. You know, I mean, James Baldwin immediately comes to mind, right? Uh, introduce new mindsets uh, that you have not yet been 
exploring in the past and begin to learn on a deeper level uh, from our talented folks and look at history from a different set of eyes and a different lens than what we've been indoctrinated with in school. So those would be my ideas. Of course, we always get to this point of counter stories where we could go on forever and ever, but we've got to put a pin in someplace. Um, But I want to add to that author list, pick up uh, two books uh, by Rose McGee, who is here talking with us right now. One, Kumbaya, the Juneteenth story, which is a a play that helps to tell the story in a unique way and in a really cool way. um, um, That's an artifact for for, for here to just carry with you. Another one, um, pick up um, uh, uh, her book around circle stories. Circle um, stories. Story circle stories, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is again is 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 carrying on that tradition of using story for healing, um, which is part of what Juneteenth is about: is reconnecting and telling those sacred stories. You know, I'll close us out by a line from your play: "Stepped, Stepped on, on a pin and a pin bent, and that's the way the story went." <laughs> <laughs> what does Juneteenth mean to you? It's a celebration of Black excellence to me. Juneteenth means to me that people are finally realizing the history and they're accepting it and we're celebrating the, the liberation, the freedoms, and moving forward. Juneteenth, at least for me, is a time for, I mean, it's not necessarily only just celebration, but it's a time to try to understand why and what we're doing why we actually are doing what we're doing here and we got to this point. But the release of uh, the slavery in that back in the time and then not actually being known uh, throughout until a couple uh, years later just shows a lot about where our system was back in the day. But the reason why we celebrate more and more every single year is to just show that freedom um, and just accept that freedom for ourselves and really just feel more liberated from there. For me, Juneteenth means uh, unity, uh, a celebration. Actually, this is uh, my first Juneteenth here in Madison, and it's a pleasure to see everybody come out and uh, enjoy themselves and just uh, be communal, especially after all, all the stuff that we've been through the last, you know, 24 months or so. It's good to see everybody being able to come out and, and reconnect. It means uh, freedom and, and liberation for, uh, for black people. And, you know, this is something that I uh, really didn't know a whole heck of a lot about until fairly recently. And I think it's uh, fantastic that uh, we're celebrating black heritage and, and black history and acknowledging uh, the past. Uh, Juneteenth means for me is a true celebration of true freedom or what should be true freedom and the fact that you know, America had uh, fought for the freedom of the enslaved people. It took two years for it to get to everybody. And so it's a celebration of that finally coming to um, culmination. And so continuing to celebrate that that's part of our history and it's been hidden for so long that um, it's great that people are starting to recognize uh, these other parts of our history to celebrate. And you know, earlier this week, federal government formally recognized Juneteenth as a federal holiday going forward. What does that that official recognition by the nation's leaders mean to you? You look a little bit skeptical there. You look a little doubtful. I appreciate the effort, but that's not what we wanted. You know what I mean? You skip past a lot of things that we asked for to give us a, a picture to hang on the wall. 
You know what I mean? But that's okay. It's better than nothing. I appreciate it. And he's exactly right. I mean, right now, they're, they're trying to stop history being taught in our schools. So if we don't teach what has happened in the past, how can we write that? There's still a lot of systemic racism in so much of our government, our schools, in the policing, everywhere, housing. So, I mean, we need to make sure that people know that everybody needs to be included. There is so much wealth here in the United States. There's a plenty for everybody. Why can't we all just have some of it? It is important because why is July 4th more of a liberation than Juneteenth? Uh, and so to have that as a federal holiday is amazing. I think what's in addition to it is what are the other components that are coming along with it? Yes, it's a federal holiday and people have it off. It shouldn't just be a day of service, but it should be a start to how we can recognize the challenges that, like, why does it take so long for this to be recognized, A, and then what additional pieces we can do uh, as a community, as a government, as a nation, to try to to continue in this way of progression and to for equality and proper representation of all people in all spaces. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. And you're listening to WORT. And joining me by phone is Professor Gerald Horn. Dr. Horn holds the Moore's Professorship of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's the author of more than 30 books and 100 scholarly articles and reviews. His research has addressed issues of racism in a variety of relations involving labor, politics, civil rights, international relations, and war. He has two uh, new books out. Um, First, White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela, based upon exhaustive research in all presidential libraries from Hoover to Clinton, the uh, voluminous archives of the African National Congress at Fort Hare University in South Africa, along with um, with the archives of the NAACP, the Ford and Rockefeller Foundations. It is a comprehensive account to date of the entangled histories of apartheid and Jim Crow. And Dr. Horn traces in detail the close ties um, between Mandela, Robeson, and Dubois, and others. The second book, um, out now, Jazz and Justice, Racism and the Political Economy of the Music, and a beautiful book um, as well. So I wanted to speak with Dr. Horn this morning about his um, uh, new book, particularly White Supremacy Confronted um, this morning, but also you know what he thinks about um, during the 4th of July holiday time, and if he has any reaction to the president's uh, planned military spectacle um, in Washington tomorrow. So it's really always great to have uh, Dr. Gerald Horn with me. Good morning, Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's really great to have you on. You know, in, in thinking about the holiday and about tomorrow's 
military spectacle, it actually really made sense to start talking about your new book. That was, and I, I just thought, let's start there about this particular book. Um, I mentioned two, but wanted to spend some time this morning talking more about white supremacy confronted. Uh, U.S. imperialism and anti-communism versus the liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela, and the close ties um, between Mandela, Robeson, Dubois, and others. Uh, can you talk about the the crux of this work? Well, you may recall that the South Africa came to independence in the spring of 1994 with Nelson Mandela being elected president. Uh, this took place after a torturous struggle, perhaps beginning in 1652 when you had the first invasion of the southern tip of Africa by Dutch settlers and then supplemented by French Protestant settlers later in the 17th century. Uh, ultimately, to fast forward, they imposed a system known as apartheid in 1948, which was a kind of Jim Crow on steroids, if not a neo-slavery. But what my book focuses on are the close ties between U.S. imperialism and U.S. anti-communism and South African apartheid. Uh, That is to say that the South African Communist Party was a major player in terms of the anti-apartheid struggle, playing a major role in the African National Congress. And from Washington's point of view, that was sufficient reason to continue to support the apartheid regime until, of course, an anti-apartheid movement took flight in this country, particularly, I might say, in Madison, Wisconsin, but indeed from the Atlantic to the Pacific that involved not only student groups protesting universities' investment in corporations that uh, were part of their endowments that basically profited from neo-slavery in South Africa, and also unions like the International Longshore and Warehouseman's Union in San Francisco, which refused to uh, unload South African goods on the docks from Seattle to San Diego. So in sum, that's what this book concerns. Can you talk about the close ties between the um, between um, Mandela and those in the U.S.? Well, um, Nelson Mandela, I'm not, I'm not the first person to note this, was for a good deal of his adult life a leading member of the South African Communist Party. In this, he was in philosophical agreement with Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson, you may recall, was the black American entertainer, actor, singer, political activist, and athlete who was in the orbit of the U.S. Communist Party. In my biography of Robeson, I suggested he might have been a member of the British Communist Party. He lived in Britain for about two decades, from the early uh, 1920s until about 1941. And as you know, W.E.B. Du Bois, who was a founder of the NAACP, uh, ultimately joined the U.S. Communist Party in 1961 before going into exile in Ghana, West Africa. So there was a kind of parallelism, if you like, between the political trajectories of people uh, like Nelson Mandela, uh, but not only Nelson Mandela. Of course, uh, Govan Mbeki, uh, who may have been the leading intellectual come activist in South Africa and was the father of Tabo Mbeki, Mandela's deputy president and Mandela's successor, uh, was a leader of the South, Af- South African Communist Party uh, throughout his long life. So there are many uh, of, of these kinds of connections that cross the Atlantic.
the and, and then and then th- th- that relationship between the anti-apartheid activists and the and and the 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 American black um, activists and this um, the role. Um, working in tandem with the, the communists and socialist camps becomes a deciding factor in the U.S. no longer supporting apartheid. How does that happen? Well, it's no accident that Nelson Mandela is freed in February 1990, and his organization, the African National Congress, is unbanned, along with his ally, the South African Communist Party, being unbanned weeks after the collapse of the Berlin Wall in November 1989, which signaled the oncoming, onrushing decomposition of the socialist camp, uh, which reaches a zenith, if you like, uh, in December 1991 with the Soviet Union collapsing. The last apartheid leader, uh, F.W. de Klerk, comes to the conclusion uh, rather wisely from his point of view in retrospect that with the decomposition of the socialist camp that the ANC would be handicapped even if it came to power. It would not be able to move aggressively and effectively towards redistributing the wealth from bottom to top. And indeed, that has been the case. Uh, That is to say, the ANC has been in power for 25 years, and certainly uh, there have been notable successes in terms of the provisioning of water, in terms of provisioning of uh, education, which was systematically denied to the African majority by the European minority uh, for decades, if not centuries. But certainly there is a modicum of disappointment uh, in the record of the ANC, but of course the ANC prevails over a country that only has a population of 55 million people, and it's very difficult to stand up against the entire North Atlantic bloc led by the United States of America, which, as you know, is celebrating its national holiday tomorrow. And I, I, I would be remiss if I did not mention that a few years ago I was on this station talking about my book, The Counter-Revolution mm-hmm. of 1776, where I tried to uh, revise, if you'd like, the creation myth of the founding of a slaveholders republic in the late 18th century and how this alleged revolutionary nation has been a major counter-revolutionary force uh, for decades, if not centuries, up to and including being a stalwart partner of apartheid South Africa until forced to retreat. So, so going to that part of the 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 history, that counter revolutionary um, history, were more Afri- black Africans in America supporting the American Revolution or Great Britain? Oh, clearly the latter, by several orders of magnitude. And in uh, and, and another book I wrote, The Negro Comrades of the Crown, I pointed out that during the War of 1812, when the United States tried to take over Canada, that uh, by several orders of magnitude, uh, black people, and then I should also say Native Americans as well, uh, sided with Britain, uh, understandably, because... <laughs> It was the United States that, after the ouster of Britain in 1776, moved to enslave more Africans, uh, formulated the Constitution that enshrined the slave trade, moved aggressively to take Native Americans' land from the Atlantic to the Pacific. The great Native American warrior Tecumseh fought shoulder to shoulder with the Redcoats uh, against the uh, settlers. Africans in Washington, D.C., 
joined with the red coats and torching that capital, sending President James Madison and his garrulous spouse, Dolly, fleeing into the streets, one step ahead of the posse. And then on British ships, they decamped to Trinidad and Tobago, where their descendants continue to reside. But I'm afraid to say that even with the election of the 45th U.S. president, even with, as Congresswoman AOC has suggested, there are concentration camps now on the border between the United States and Mexico, with Congresswoman uh, Ocasio-Cortez hinting darkly about the rise of fascism in the United States, a theme also uh, noted in a recent book by former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, Fascism, a Warning, and yet we even have people who consider themselves radical in the face of this mounting evidence, continuing to tell this ridiculous line about a so-called revolutionary republic emerging in the late 18th century. If we're not careful, we'll have a lot of time to debate these things in the internment camps and sports stadiums in Madison, Green Bay, and Milwaukee. You know, the, you know this, to me, is the cleavage that you know, goes back to the beginning um, and comes up in different contexts. But the idea of U.S. imperialism, anti-communism versus communism, socialism, um, the um, and, and and during during the um, the the for the Revolutionary War was that a that that, that contemplation on whether to support Great Britain or the the American revolutionaries by um, blacks was that what, what was the intensity of that contemplation was it was it a difficult decision can you describe what that was like it was not difficult at all I mean, it reminds me uh, of another book i wrote on uh, the country once known as rhodesia now zimbabwe where in 1965 a white minority sought to break away from london's rule not least because they felt London was moving towards African-majority rule, just like the settlers in North America tried to break away from London's rule in 1776, not least because they felt that London was moving towards abolition of slavery, as suggested by Somerset's case in June 1772, where slavery was abolished in England. Then, of course, there was this idea that that decision would leapfrog the Atlantic, jeopardizing the fortress of a murderous row of settlers, including George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry. And then there was the Royal Proclamation of 1763, where London raised doubt about continuing to fund these settlers, including real estate speculator number one, George Washington, in terms of seizing Native Americans' land. And so it was not a hard decision at all to oppose these uh, settlers and their revolt. And I dare say you can draw a straight line from the decision my ancestors made in the late 18th century to the fact that we now have the need for a group like Black Lives Matter to protest police shooting black people down in the streets like dogs, because when you fight a war and lose, which is what happened to the African population in North America, you can begin to think that you will be pulverized and penalized forevermore unless and until you can turn the tables, which we did by supporting, for example, the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, which ignited a general crisis of the entire slave system, forced Britain to move more aggressively towards abolition of slavery, uh, feeling that if it did not, 
British settlers would lose their lives, if not their fortunes, in colonies like Jamaica and Barbados. And so, therefore, Britain abolishes slavery in 1833, 1834, then, along with Haiti, puts pressure on the United States to do the same, which then forces the U.S. Civil War, 1861 to 1865, leading to the abolition of slavery, but then the implantation of a U.S. form of apartheid known as Jim Crow. And once again, it took the international community. That is to say, Washington found it difficult in the 1950s to continue to preen and posture as a paragon of human rights virtue in its ideological battle with the socialist camp, as long as Jim Crow stained the escutcheon of this so-called republic. And so that created a dynamic that led to the retreat of Jim Crow. But now, alas, in 2019, there's significantly less pressure on U.S. imperialism, and therefore you have the resurgence, if you like, of these kinds of police killings that have not only stained Madison, but Milwaukee as well. You know, what should we be saying to children about all of this? They're not learning about this necessarily in their sort of compulsory education. They are, this is kind of a indoctrinating process, if you will. How do you discuss the concept of taking the knee on the 4th of July to young people? Well, in, in terms that I've just articulated, but keep in mind that there is a long tradition in this country, not least in immigrant communities, but not exclusively in immigrant communities, of having Saturday schools where young people are instructed and what the true history is on Saturday after being fed propaganda from Monday to Friday. And I think that the idea of Saturday schools, which, by the way, took flight as well in the Jim Crow South in the 1950s and 1960s, needs to be resuscitated, revived, and not just a product of immigrant communities and black communities. You know, my mother used to do that when I was a kid. Um, We'd have Saturday school and... I didn't really understand why, but I do understand why now. The um, the Fourth of July, this um, military spectacle. Should people watch it? Is watching it condoning it? Well, I'm not sure if they should watch it. I mean, you never know what's going to happen in this country, given the violence that is part of the culture. But certainly, I don't think that they should be condoning this. Uh, ultra-right-wing spectacle. I mean, by the way, as you probably know, uh, in the audience in Washington, D.C. on the 4th of July, and I'm I'm speaking to you from Washington, D.C., by the way, uh, will be neo-fascist groups like the Proud Boys, will be bikers for Trump, which also has the whiff of fascism about it. And so if that's what you want to be part of, if you want to sign on (laughs) to fascism and neo-fascism, well, then be my guest. So they are there because of this rally? They are are sort of traveling to Washington tomorrow for this event? Well, sure. You might recall that Mr. Trump's uh, kickoff in Orlando, Florida, uh, just a few weeks ago, they were present there. You might also have heard about the battle in the streets of Portland, Oregon, just a few days ago between anti-fascist forces and the Proud Boys. Uh, you might also know that uh, pro-fascist, uh, ultra-rightist forces have sunk their claws into U.S. 
police departments and to the U.S. military. You might know about the scandal that ProPublica has just unveiled mm-hmm. about the Customs and Border Patrol and the racist and sexist and misogynist of Facebook groups that have included thousands. The Customs and Border Patrol, of course, is one of the largest so-called law enforcement agencies in the United States of America. They had means of portraying the sexual assault allegedly, of President Trump on Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. This is the country in which we live, I'm afraid to say, as opposed to these gauzy, sentimental notions that oftentimes characterize the uh, celebration of this alleged holiday. And and this um, holiday in Washington, a political rally, um, Trump and his base, the um, election... And we had two debates last week. Um, looking forward and ahead towards this election next year, what are the critical questions? I, you know, just, you know, if you had a chance to pose a single question to the candidates, and I know that's really, I, you, you think about so much, and I urge people to read anything that you have written. Um, but what kind of pops into your head that um, if you suddenly had a chance to ask all of them, a question. Well, well, I will say this in terms of doing an analysis of the, these debates that took place, the most recent one in Miami, that uh, outside of that Miami arena, it's apparent that the only infrastructure that's looking beyond 2020 is the Our Revolution group of Senator Bernie Sanders. That's point number one. He's also been eloquent with regard to his criticism of intervention in Iran and to a lesser degree with regard to the U.S. pro-Israel policies. With regard to Senator Warren, it's striking that she seems to have a domestic plan for everything, but is rather mute with regard to foreign policy. With regard to Senator Kamala Harris, uh, I have to say that I was impressed with her takedown of Senator Joe Biden on this question of busing, as Reverend Jackson said back in the day when busing was a major issue. The issue was not the bus, it's us speaking of black Americans, and it's rather reprehensible that Joseph Biden took a state's rights posture in order to justify depriving black youth of children. But then, of course, uh, Senator Harris has uh, her own record to defend concerning uh, her being district attorney in San Francisco in terms of being attorney general of California. I mean, I could go down the list and give an analysis of all of these candidates, but I think what it points to is the fact that if we are to be rescued from Trumpism in November 2020, we're going to need a deeper ideological commitment by folks on the left, uh, rethinking of the origins of the slaveholders' republic. And apparent, uh, it's apparent that we're going to have to do that in double time tomorrow, July 4th. And also, we need broader organizations, uh, not unlike what uh, our revolution is seeking to do. Thank you, Dr. Gerald Horn.